today we are going to be cracking into First Peter. So we, we came through Philemon last Sunday, and we're going to start First Peter. Lord willing, we'll get through Second Peter after First Peter. So this is a greeting from Peter to the elect pilgrims. Verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So Peter is the author of the two letters that bear his namesake. Uh, Simon was his name before Christ gave him the name of Cephas, which is Peter the Rock. And Simon Peter was from Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee, and he and his brother Andrew were fishermen by trade. Now, tradition tells us that Peter was a big old burly guy, and that would make sense if he was a fisherman, because it wasn't fishing like we know it today. It was commercial fishing, and they hauled up these nets full of fish so you had to be strong to do this. Uh, so Peter was a big guy. And just from what we see in scripture, he was also a very emotionally driven guy. He was very impulsive uh, in his actions. You see him in John eighteen ten. he cut off the ear of one of the soldiers as they were coming to, to take Jesus. So he's very emotionally driven and not afraid to act on what he feels is right. But you see his animal courage come out, that wanting to cut the soldier's ear off, but he was lacking in moral courage. When he was simply questioned if he knew Jesus, he denied him three times. So that makes you wonder, like, what was missing there? And it makes me look at myself and kind of separate these two types of courage. I can be a tough guy, you know, the, the stereotypical tough guy, uh, animal courage, and I can still be lacking in moral courage. So that makes me look on the inside to see, you know, if I was faced with the same type of, I'm going to say basic kind of trials, like just someone asking me if I know Jesus, am I going to shy away from that? Or am I going to be courageous in proclaiming that, yes, I'm a child of God. I do know Jesus. So though his animal courage abounded and his moral courage lacked, it seems that after his res- restoration to Jesus, so he denied Jesus and then Jesus came back and restored him into the fold. And three times Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? All three times Peter said, you know, I love you. I love you. I love you. Three times. It was in direct response to those three times that he denied him. And after that restoration, we see Peter is more willing to do and to suffer for Christ than he is just to proclaim Christ. He was called the mouth of the apostles for a reason. He was a loudmouth guy. He liked talking. Uh, but after this restoration, we see he's more into doing and suffering for Christ. So that's an interesting um, dynamic a shift of of character traits that we see in him. In July of AD 64, 
Nero burned Rome. And shortly after that, in October, he began persecuting the Christian church. So we have all these things going down in Rome, and this was a reaction uh, that, so Peter was reacting to these things happening in writing his letters. Uh, He addresses the letters to the pilgrims of the dispersion. That just refers to uh, the Christians, mostly Jewish Christians, who fled out of Jerusalem as the uh, as the persecution there got more and more intense. So you have the persecution in Jerusalem driving out all of these new Jewish Christians, and they would land all over the Roman Empire. So these church uh, these churches that Paul founded around the Roman Empire are the people from this dispersion. So we see throughout history that uh, persecution actually spreads the Church of Christ. It spreads it. It doesn't dampen it down. And uh, Peter, writing in his first epistle here that we're looking at, is addressing the persecution from outside of the church. So outside persecution coming in and affecting the church. In his second epistle, you see, if, if Satan can't get the church from attacking it from the outside, he'll try to infiltrate it and destroy it from within. So in his second epistle, Peter writes to these same pilgrims of the dispersion as the first epistle. But in the second epistle, he writes about uh, false teachings, those attacks from within the church. Okay, so we're going to look at the attacks from outside the church first. Now, again, in AD 64, this time in the spring, so right before the persecution began, right before uh, the city of Rome was burned, uh, it seems that Paul was released from his prison in Rome. So he was released from prison and he went to Spain, as he mentions doing in Romans 15.28. And this left Peter and a few other guys to minister in the city of Rome. So Peter knew that this fiery trial that he had witnessed, the burning of Rome, would soon kind of spread out from the center of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, into its providences, into its uh, surrounding areas. And so this letter is a warning to the believers in those areas that this fiery trial, as he refers to later in the letter, would spread from Rome and be affecting them. In 1 Peter, uh, we see this reaction to the outside attacks in second Peter, uh, we are going to see the attacks from within the church. These two letters are also a fulfilling on Peter's part of Jesus's command to feed my sheep. So Jesus says, when he's restoring people, when he's restoring Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. So that's exactly what Peter is trying to do here in these two epistles. In 1 Peter, a big theme that we'll be seeing is grace. In the Greek, charis. It's a common greeting for them, and it's also like this grace, this unmerited favor. So uh, in 2 Peter, we'll be seeing a lot of knowledge. So he'll be over and over talking about the knowledge of Christ. And then at the end of his second epistle, he summarizes it all. And this is a really good verse that 
is very representative of both of these letters. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And that's Second uh, Peter 3.18. So verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of the many disciples that Jesus had following him, he chose 12 to be apostles. And Simon Peter was one of these 12 apostles. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. We believe that God knows everything, right? That's what I believe. I believe God knows everything. If he does know everything, he's omniscient, then he can't learn anything because the learning is acquiring of knowledge. So he, he simply cannot learn if he already knows everything. Further, everything that is to be known is known by God. So there's nothing that can be known that he does not know. Okay, bear with me. If this is true, and this is what we believe, then we should have no problem with the, the doctrine of election because God knows who will choose him. It's not to the, to the detriment of this free will that we have. God will not violate our free will, but he does know what we will choose before we choose it. So if in me he sees that I will choose him, then he is going to choose me. Think about if you were... Uh, drafting players for a professional football team. Okay. And you knew that this certain player had an allegiance to your opponent. And he might even try to sabotage your team if you drafted him. Would you pick him? Of course you wouldn't. That would be dumb. <laughs> you wouldn't pick somebody that you know is not going to pick you. So that's really the same idea that we have here. Uh, the foreknowledge of the father. And it's, it's worth noting that you don't have election apart from this foreknowledge that he talks about. Uh, where election is spoken of, foreknowledge is spoken of. So that's important. In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So in sanctification of the Spirit really just means uh, set apart through the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's not necessarily talking of the work of sanctification, of becoming more Christ-like. Uh, it's more talking about a setting apart. So elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in being set apart through the Spirit of God. And what is that setting apart for? Well, it's for obedience and it's for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the dispersion of the gospel. Uh, as we know, we are supposed to facilitate. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So to these saints, he wishes that grace, charis, and peace, shalom, be multiplied. Now, I like that math. He doesn't say be added. He says be multiplied. So grace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope that we have is a living hope. And it's different than hope that's in the world. Okay. This hope in Greek is elpis. And it means just that hope or an earnest expectation. You see, it's an expectation. It's not, oh, I hope that this thing is going to happen. I hope that I get a new car this year. Or I hope that I can pay my house off this year. It's not, not a hope in the sense that the world has. It's a certainty. It's an earnest expectation. And in the Christian sense, it's a joyful and confident expectation of this eternal salvation that we've been promised. So the hope that we have is a living hope and it's certain. And, uh, this is, this is actually pretty cool. As we work through this epistle, we will see a lot of similarities between this letter and Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Okay. So I'm going to point out a few and there's actually way too many to, actually look at all of them. There's over a hundred similarities between these two letters and they were written by different guys. Paul wrote Ephesians, Peter wrote first Peter, and they say very, very similar things. And in many cases, they're even using much the same language, like many of the same phrases and everything they use. So what that shows me is the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit on the text we know that these guys were inspired because they're echoing the same spiritual truths to these people that they're writing to. So this is really, really neat to see. And this first similarity that we'll look at is found in verse three here. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we'll compare that to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Both of these authors are blessing God for the work that he's carried out through Jesus Christ. Not only that, they use these similar wordings. They're both saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then they tell why they're blessing God. And so we'll see a few more of those as we move on. I think we've got one more uh, in this first chapter today. But verse 4, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's a lot of words. Let's see what it means. (laughs) To an inheritance incorruptible. This inheritance that we're promised is of the word of God. And we'll see later that the word of God does not fade away. It is incorruptible, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's later on in this chapter. So that ties back in with what we're seeing here reserved in heaven for you 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Your spot is reserved in heaven. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, your eternal destiny is sealed. And that's what it's saying. It's saying this incorruptible inheritance is reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. So the power of God reserves this place in heaven for you through faith. So what's your side of the deal? It's faith. Faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Apart from faith, we don't have this salvation because God has taken care of everything. He's provided the lamb. He arranged in time these kairos that we talked about, these points in time. He arranged so that this salvation, this salvific gift could be fulfilled. He's done all of this for us. He rose his son from the dead and he's now seated with him. He's, he's finished that. Our only thing that we have to do is believe in that. It's a, it's a faith thing. And apart from faith, we have nothing. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. You're sealed, so that's a, a permanent kind of thing for the day of redemption. And this is our living hope, the living hope that we just talked about. Now, through faith, it's not by works. Uh, we know that Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that just beautifully laid out uh, this whole thing that we're talking about right now. Uh, so Romans 5.1, read it again um, in your own time here and kind of bask in that because that's exactly what we're talking about. Verse six, he says, in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So although we do rejoice in this salvation, which we should, uh, it's, it's great news. We will be tested by trials while we're on the earth. And that's exactly what he's saying. In this, you greatly rejoice the salvation Though now for a little while, while you're on the earth, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, I do believe there's a, a double truth here. Uh, there's an immediate truth that Peter is referring to, and there's a spirit, spiritual truth that, rep, that Peter is referring to. So the immediate truth, these guys that he was writing to, they were facing trials at this time. And he says, Though now for a little while, like right when he was writing this, they are facing various trials. And again, the, the spiritual truth in this is that while we are on earth, before we have received that incorruptible inheritance, we will be facing trials. And that's promised to us. Okay, so if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now look what these trials are for that the genuineness of your faith, 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom whom having not seen, you love. So simply put, these trials test your faith. And the testing of the faith purifies the faith. So he, he compares it to gold. Okay, he, he's got gold mentioned in here. So if you have your gold and you heat it up by fire, a fiery trial, it will melt and the impurities will rise to the top. And at that point, you can kind of scoop off the impurities and you're left with a more pure gold than when the trial started. It's the same way with, with our earthly trials. You go into this and maybe you have a little debris in your heart. Maybe there's some impurities. It heats up. You get pushed to your limits. And in this fiery trial, those impurities rise to the top. Believe me, they will. When you're in a trial, uh, the worst comes out, doesn't it? So you can identify those impurities and target them. You can scoop them off the top and you come out more pure than you went in. And that makes sense to us. We have this, this idea of gold to kind of relate to. So James, in his book, chapter 2, verse 17, he says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith without works is dead. That's interesting. I thought I was saved by faith, not of works. Absolutely you are. But faith, if it's not accompanied by works, is dead. So the faith that is not accompanied by works is not true faith. It's not active faith. So we're looking for this active faith. And a couple sentences later in James, he elaborates on this idea of active faith. He says, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So yeah, I mean, we are justified by faith. That's true. But the faith accompanies works. The works come as a natural outflowing of the gift that we've received in Jesus Christ. So they, they naturally come together. If you have this saving faith, then you will show it to people around you. And this is one of the functions of the various trials in our lives. It says here to prove the genuineness of our faith. So verse eight, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So though do you, though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice. And he's talking to these believers that he addressed the message to in these Roman provinces. They did not necessarily see Jesus, right? And we're in much the same position. We haven't actually seen Jesus 
on earth, yet we've heard of him. We have this amazing revelation from God that tells us about him, but we haven't actually seen him. And in John 20, 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's awesome. Because though Thomas, who doubted that Jesus had even risen from the dead, though he believed when he saw Jesus, yet we are blessed because we have not seen him, but still believe. So that's encouraging. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is the result, the end of our faith. Uh, It's an eternity with our Heavenly Father, our Creator. That's extremely exciting. Verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of the of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Again, a lot of words. What does it mean? Well, he's really just saying right here that the Old Testament prophets, uh, we've got Isaiah among others, and I'll give you an example from Isaiah. They didn't understand fully what they were writing down. They knew that what they had was from God, but they didn't know to what end it would be. So uh, Daniel, uh, when he has received his prophecies to write down, he says, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So even Daniel saying, I have no idea what I'm writing right now, but I have to trust because the Holy Spirit is giving me these things that it's good and it's true. So he writes them down and seals them up. And it's interesting that in these last few years, we have seen some possible fulfillments of what Daniel was talking about. And we have a better idea in these times of the end um, what Daniel was prophesying about. It's interesting. So he had no idea. But it says that the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So now we have a better understanding of what he wrote down. And Isaiah writes about the this political ruler, uh, what they viewed as the Messiah. And indeed, he would be the Messiah, but not quite in the way that they were thinking. So here he writes in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So that was earlier on in his writing. Well, later in his writing, he writes this. Think about how confused he's going to be. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a, slant, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Those things don't seem to go together. Uh, on the surface, just reading that, sounds like two different people. You have this political ruler, this political giant, who's ruling over the nations, and it says that the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then you have this suffering Messiah. It says that he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, and that he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Those seem to be diametrically opposing viewpoints and people. So I'm sure that Isaiah in writing this was like, I don't know what's happening here. Like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I, I believe that it will. And we get to see now, um, and this goes right along with what Peter is saying here, we get to see the fulfillment of these things that these Old Testament prophets only had glimpses into. They only had fragments of the whole puzzle that we get to see. And although now these two passages from Isaiah are talking about different comings of Jesus Christ. So the second one is talking about his first coming. So he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That was his work on the cross. And that was when he was incarnated as a man on earth. Now, this first passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, part of it is talking about his first coming. But he did not set up his kingdom on earth in his first coming. So the part that's talking about the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's talking about his second coming. And we see that now tied in with other scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, we see this reign that he will have in the end times. And we can piece that together from what Isaiah is writing. But these Old Testament prophets didn't have that insight. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Back down to verse 13. Peter says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, before I move on into 13, I want to point out one more similarity in Ephesians in verse 12. You can read verse 12 and compare it to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 10. That reads, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That's verse 5. Oh, verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So these guys are saying the same things. Uh, the prophets didn't know what was going on. Now we have a more clear insight into what has happened and what will happen. So the Spirit, again, is inspiring this truth. 
Okay, back to 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, there is much cultural context that comes with this. So in this day, they they had these long robes that they would wear down to their ankles. Okay, so they're walking around in these long robes. And I'm sure, ladies, you know, it's difficult to move around, run, work in a long dress, right? That's why nobody does it, because it's hard. <laughs> so in order to really get down and dirty to garden and stuff and, you know, do, do all of the things that you had to do, they would tie up this long dress. So they would pull it up to their waist and gird it around their waist so that it would be out of their way. They could move more freely. Now, the girding up of your loins is signifying that work is about to be done, right? So you gird it up so that you can get to work, so that you can run fast, so that you can exert yourself. It's kind of like this long dress is like trying to play kickball in chacos. Like it just doesn't work very well. It's just not made for it. You know, the, the Chacos have a purpose and they're awesome for like hiking and stuff, but they're not athletic footwear. You can't just go out and, and play this hard game in something that's not made for it. So you have to gird it up so you're ready to go. So what he's saying is gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready to work in these things. Gird up the loins of your mind, get it ready for war, get it ready for work. Be sober, again, saying the same thing, sober, you're of a sound mind. Your mind is ready to work. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to rest our hope fully upon the grace. So there's that grace, charis. Uh, the common theme in First Peter, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're not to hope in our present circumstances because, I mean, honestly, they're kind of bleak. You look around the world and the present circumstances are not looking too hot right now. So we're supposed to rest our hope in that future, in the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So <laughs> he's saying, used to before you were saved, and you were ignorant. And these former lusts is what you are conforming yourself to. You're conforming yourself to what your fleshly heart desired. And that, that was your, your thrust in life was to get after these, these desires that you had money, you know, you, you desire strongly to get this money. Um, and so that is the focus in your life. And he's saying as obedient children. So since you are obedient, don't conform yourselves to the former lusts. Don't keep living the same way that you lived before you got saved as in your ignorance or you're saved, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. 
So since Christ is holy and he calls us to be holy, he's a great example. We should follow that example. We are to be holy as he is holy. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So this is an interesting little verse here. If you call on the father who without partiality judges. So if God does judge without partiality, I know that my works will be tested in the end. Um, As a believer uh, at the, the judgment, my works will be tried by fire and it will be made apparent which ones were for God, which ones were for man and which ones were for myself for selfish reasons. So there will be this separating of works without partiality. He judges without partiality. Uh, so I can't get in based on who I am. I can't do anything based on who I am. But without partiality, I have to be accepted based on who I am in Christ. And that's, that's the only uh, distinction that is important as a believer. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So if that is true, that my works will be tested and done so without partiality, then that should strike some reverential fear in me. Uh, And it's not a tormentive fear. That's not what we're talking about, but a fear like a son has for his father. It's a reverence knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So knowing this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So knowing those things, that should uh, free you from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now, it's obvious that he's talking directly to these Jewish Christians right now. So he's saying the tradition that you receive from your fathers. It's referring to the Jewish traditions. And they had a lot of them. They had a lot of traditions that were devised by man. And uh, to God, these religious works are as filthy rags. And we are told that in scripture. And it's unimportant. Those filthy rags, the religious things that we do just for religion's sake, uh, not in relationship to him, they're filthy rags and they're worth nothing. Uh, Think how much a filthy rag is worth to you. A lot of times if you soil a rag bad enough, you just throw it away. You don't even bother to wash it. It's, it's nothing, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now I hear people talk about cheap grace. You know, if you keep preaching grace, you're going to have people running around and making a fool of themselves, uh, acting however they want to act just so that they can get more grace. And in that you would say that that's cheap grace. There's no such thing as cheap grace. Uh, Grace was afforded to us at this most precious price. 
the price of the Son of God. That's not cheap. That's, that's the most precious thing in existence. Uh, so that blood of Christ was spilled for us so that this grace could be extended to us. It's not cheap. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now, Peter also uses the word precious many, many times. And I think it's uh, quite hilarious that this big burly man, this fisherman, this tough guy is going around writing about precious things. I, I just think that's funny. And I think that God has a sense of humor in changing Peter. He changes his heart and he softens him, makes a little marshmallow out of him. So this big guy, this rock, interestingly enough, is softened and he's made into a little marshmallow. So as we go through, just notice how many times he says precious. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So without blemish and without spot, that phrase is also seen in the Old Testament referring to the sacrificial lambs. And we know that those sacrificial lambs were a type of Christ. They pointed forward to the the substance of them, which was Christ. And so this without blemish means that uh, the lamb would have been without genetic defect. So there was nothing in the lamb itself that uh, made it impure, but it was without blemish. And without spot, the spot would have been talking about a blemish that was contracted from outside of the lamb itself. So, for example, if the lamb got poked in the eye with a stick and poked its eye out, then that would be a spot. It would be a physical impurity uh, that made the lamb uh, improper to sacrifice to God. So we see here that Jesus is that lamb who was without blemish and without spot. Jesus did not inherit sin. Uh, Jesus is the son of God who we know is holy. Jesus himself was holy. He did not inherit any blemish. Um, and then he, he had no temptation that overcame him. He was not spotted by outside sin. There was no sin that entered into him. He remained blameless and therefore without spot. So we see this beautiful picture from the Old Testament coming together, and we see that the substance of it is Christ. Verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Salvation, your salvation was not an afterthought. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That's beautiful. It wasn't like God said, oh man, they messed up. Now I got to figure something out. Uh, what, what can I do? Uh, oh, there's this guy. We'll just send him down and he'll take care of it. That's not at all what happened. Before you were created, God knew the price that he would have to pay to redeem you to himself. And he chose to create you. 
that tells you something about God's character, about this love. And it's so foreign to us, this self-sacrificial love that wants nothing in return, this agape love. It's so foreign to us. I can't wrap my mind around it. And I think I'll go on forever learning more about this love, but never fully comprehending this love. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He being Jesus. He was, it was planned that Jesus would take on form of a man, be among us, be crucified by us, and then raised again. That was planned. So God, knowing what he was doing, still chose to take that route. He chose to create us and to love us. But was manifest in these last times for you. And we've been talking about this, so I I don't feel I need to repeat it. But, you know, Jesus was a shadow in the Old Testament, in the New Testament times, in the church age. He has been revealed. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 21, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. He tells us to love one another fervently with a pure heart. Not like the fake love that you see in the world. And, you know, you you hear people say, oh, I love your outfit. That's not the same love. That's a different kind of love. And it's nice in Greek because you can tell the difference between these different types of love. Uh, You got the phileo, eros, uh, agape. Like they have different words for these different kinds of love. In, In English, we just have love. It annoys me. Because you can't make the distinction clear. You can say, I love your outfit. I love tacos. I love my wife. I love God. I love my brother in Christ. And you've got some different types of love in there. You don't love tacos like you love your wife, I hope. So making that distinction is helpful to us. Uh, But love one another fervently with a pure heart. It needs to be a real kind of love not with fake love of the world. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. I was born once of corruptible seed. I've got 46 chromosomes, half from my mom, half from my dad, and I'm an interesting mix of them both. So uh, that is the birth of corruptible seed. And... I I know y'all are going to make fun of me for saying it, but um, I'm already starting to feel the decay in my body. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, okay? But but seriously, as soon as you're born, you start breaking down. Uh, And we all feel that in ourselves. The creation is groaning. And we're awaiting that final uh, pulling back together uh, from Jesus Christ. And having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Now, when Jesus 
entered your heart. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is your birth into incorruptible seed uh, that is undefiled and reserved for you in heaven. So that's exciting. I mean, you, you know you've got something coming that's better than what you've got now. Uh, the new body that we're getting is, is not going to be uh, able to decay. It's, it's not possible. Uh, God has made it incorruptible, incorruptible by sin, uh, incorruptible by time. So that's exciting. And I think that we should all be uh, thrilled about that. But having been born again, not of, in, of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. So it's worth noting that this incorruptible seed birth that we have experienced is through the word of God. Now, he'll expound on that here uh, in the next verse. He says, because all flesh is as grass, flesh right here, us, we are as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers. We're going to fade away and its flowers fall away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So we see this dichotomy, this comparison between grass and flesh and uh, the word of God being everlasting. So the grass, which is flesh, is going to fade away. You know, every, every year the grass dies in the winter and uh, we see it fade away. Like right now it's beautiful and we're having to mow it like every week. But later on in the year, it's going to fade away. It's not going to be like it is now. And we're, we see here that the word of God, the word of the Lord does not fade away like the grass does. It's the same today as it was when Peter was writing this letter. And it was the same then as it was when Abraham was justified by faith. It, it doesn't change. It's everlasting. And not only that, it's the same today as it will be when we are caught up to be with the Lord. It's not going to change in the future. So it hasn't changed and it's not going to change. It is everlasting. It endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So through the gospel being preached, this is the word, the word of God that was given to you, Peter says. And so the word of God, it's interesting because this is equating the things that they've received already to the word of God, which is helpful in uh, kind of proving that scripture was recognized by the early church as scripture when it was received by them. Okay, so the the council that put all of our canon together, they didn't decide uh, what to include in the canon. They only recognized what was already being received as scripture, and they compiled it all together for us. And that's important in some arguments that you may get into. Uh, moving on. Chapter two, and this is really just a, a continuation of the thought before it. So don't pay too much atten attention to this chapter break. Therefore, so in light of the fact that all flesh is grass and is going to fade away and the word of God endures forever, in light of that, 
laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So he says, therefore, and we always know that the therefore is therefore a reason. Now, what is that reason? He says, because the word of the Lord endures forever, you should be laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So everything that's evil, just set it aside. Um, because the word of God is eternal, and that's what the word of God tells you to do. You should be laying these things aside. I love this. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, many of you have kids. When those kids were little, not necessarily like newborns, as we would say, but very little kids, they ask a lot of questions, don't they? It kind of wears you out. (laughs) So they are desiring this knowledge. They're desiring the milk that is the knowledge that you can give them. And as a newborn babe in Christ, we once desired these things very much. Uh, Have you, maybe when you were a, a brand new Christian, you got really into the word. You had this newfound faith in Jesus Christ and you wanted to learn about this man. You wanted to learn about Jesus. So every day you were just reading, just soaking it all in. And you were thirsty for that. And I know that many of you have had that experience just from talking to you. And I had the same experience. So Peter is saying that same fervor that you had for the word of God when you first became a Christian, I want you to revive that. I want you to continue in that desire, the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You can't grow in your relationship with Christ, apart from the word of God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot grow in Christ without his word. You can get excited. You can experience spiritual excitement apart from the word. If you sing a great song in one of these churches with flashing lights and smoke shows, you'll get excited. Some are shaking their head. You won't get excited. Maybe you'll get excited. Uh, A lot of people do get excited, uh, but that's more of an excitement. It's not really a growth deal. So to actually grow, you have to be feeding on the word of God. And, you know, in the Old Testament, it's uh, bread is a type of the word of God. So every day the Israelites had to go out and gather manna. Only for that day, they would go back, they would eat it, they would gather more the next day. So this manna that was falling from heaven, it was sweet to them, but it would mold overnight and they would have to regather the next day. So it's the same way with the word of God. It's sweet to us, but what we read yesterday is not necessarily going to carry us today. We have to go back into it each day and get our day's worth, uh, our daily bread. And that's the idea. You have to be feeding yourself 
as a newborn baby, here it's compared to milk, the milk of the word, pure milk, that you may grow thereby. So by the pure milk of the word, you are going to grow. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So if you have come into this uh, new birth, this incorruptible inheritance, then you have tasted the grace of God. And if you have done that, then this desire for the word will be in you. And that's what we see here. So what exactly did we see this morning? We saw that because of God's grace, we can live in hope, right? In uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So by this grace of God, we can live with this living hope. And that's what Peter is telling us. In addition to that, uh, so that was like the first little chunk here in the first chapter of First Peter. Well, the, the second little chunk that we just went through, um, he's saying that in addition to hope, the grace of God affords us the ability to live in holiness. Remember, he says in verses 14 and 15, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So based on that free gift of salvation, based on this grace of God, we are able to live holy. Um, And we have a great example, don't we? Jesus came and he lived a perfectly holy life. He was without spot or blemish. And we have him as an example. As he is holy, who called us, we also should be holy in all of our conduct. And so that's what we're seeing this morning. And uh, we'll, we'll continue in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 next time we meet, uh, Lord willing. But for today, let's close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed.